There's a cartoon that I like by Hilary Price, who has a strip called Rhymes with Orange, and the title, it's just a one-frame cartoon, but it's entitled As Medicine Advances. And the cartoon shows a person sitting on a doctor's examining table, and the doctor is there with a clipboard, obviously reading the results of some tests that have been taken. And the caption says, The MRI confirms it. Your mind is full of dumb and repetitive thoughts. (laughs) So I don't know whether they've quite got MRIs, even functional MRIs to that level, but can we confirm that? I think we can. We've we've talked about what it would be like if the somehow our minds were equipped with loudspeakers broadcasting all of the different thoughts we have uh, in in a sitting. And imagine what a cacophony it would be um, of these endless thoughts. And so, for many of us, I think we've already said it's one of the first insights we have is just to see what this mind does, especially when you don't give it much to do. (laughs) You know, when we're not engaged in our usual projects and, and work, what we experience is a running commentary on our experience, right? This narrating and commenting on what's happening. Um, And in that flow is often a lot of comparing evaluating and judging of how we're doing and how we're projecting other people are doing. And this tendency, which many of us are probably very familiar with, actually can lead us to a sense of separation, of isolation, of disconnection and anxiety, because there's always this theme of evaluating, judging, comparing, and in this stream of narrating, you know, telling ourselves what we're doing. And one of the beauties of meditation is we get to see we actually don't need to be telling ourselves what we're doing while we're doing it. We can do it quite well without that. But it takes quite some steadiness to actually be able to do that because most of the time the mind is just running on in that way. And unfortunately, um, because of the framing that many of us have, where it's this judging and evaluating and comparing, that it's actually a huge source of suffering for many of us um, in, in the way that it creates a sense of separation and anxiety. Um, and what's interesting about it and why I'm going to talk about this type of thinking tonight is it's one of the forms of suffering we can actually do something about. There's so much suffering, pain, loss, injustice, uh, cruelty in the world, you know, and the, the, the challenges of the body. A lot of that we can't actively do anything about, can't change in, a, in an immediate way. But this form of suffering is actually self-created and learning how to respond or relate to it skillfully and perhaps diminish it is actually a, a can bring a great deal of well-being uh, into our experience and it can seem like we do it even more on retreat um, that this kind of tendency of mind sort of runs on steroids on retreat but I actually just think it's in the in the quiet in the in the stillness that we're cultivating these thoughts especially when they take this form of judging and comparing just seem louder we're more aware of them in our ordinary run-of-the-mill experience out there in the world they're so pervasive we don't often notice we're having them but here we can really get to see what the mind is doing. That's what we're asked to do, to pay attention to the thoughts and the kinds of thoughts they're having and how they impact us, how they shape our experience. And so beginning to notice this tendency, especially when it's one that causes suffering, causes pain, is very important. And we often see it, as I said, on retreat more clearly because it so runs counter to our intentions for ourselves in practice. We come here looking to cultivate more kindness or compassion or well-being or peace or ease. All the different forms that that can take up to and including 
real freedom. And yet here's this tendency of mind sort of nagging at us with everything that's wrong with ourselves and experience. And if you've ever tuned into this, hopefully you have by now, if you have this kind of mind, and most of us have it to some extent, some stronger than others, every now and then I'll meet someone in a practice meeting and they'll say, no, that I, I don't really have that. That doesn't, that doesn't, my mind doesn't work like that. And I always go, really? What is that like? Because it's very familiar to me, um, as I will explain. And what we notice when we pay attention to these thoughts, what's the central theme of these kind of thoughts? Well, it's all about me, isn't it? It's not about you. It's all about me. But for each one of us, it's the story of me. How am I doing? You know, compared to yesterday, my ideas, someone else, the teachers, you know, my friend, someone I'm in relationship with, whatever. It's always coming back to me, the story of me. There's this I don't know what what kind of story it is. I'm sure it's made up a bit of, of two people on a first date. And one of them is taking up a lot of air time, just talking about themselves and their likes and dislikes and, you know, story of themselves until finally, after some extended period, they say, well, that's enough about me. So tell me, what do you think about me? <laughs> and even though hopefully we wouldn't say that, so much of our interactions is self-referential, right? And it's all about me. Me, I, me, mine. In counter to what the Buddha said, which is not me, not mine, not I. We're, we're conditioned, deeply conditioned uh, to have these kinds of thoughts. And again, it's not just neutral. Yes, there can be a kind of commenting, narrating that has a neutrality, but often there's digs there, right? It's critical. The inner voice can be very critical. Um, assessing how we're doing and comparing ourselves to others and trying to adjust and adapt and fix whatever we perceive to be wrong in the inner and outer world. So this type of mind was very familiar to me. I, I still know it quite, I've gotten to know it better, but hopefully it's a, it's, it's definitely reduced than it used to be. So I got interested in it, and I, I actually read a book and did a workshop with a man called Byron Brown, who's a student of A.H. Almas, Hamid Ali, who started the Diamond Heart School in the Bay Area. And he's a very powerful and profound spiritual teacher that's created this whole system of practice that many people that I know have um, engaged in. And I, I really appreciate his work. It's very engaged and dynamic. So I read this book, and I also did a workshop with him where just we spent a day looking at this tendency of mind to being to judging and being critical. It was very helpful. And in this book, which is called Soul Without Shame, and in that tradition there's uh, some concept of soul, which I don't think is quite the same as what the Judeo-Christian uh, belief is, but um, it, it, a lot of it does relate to the Buddhist understanding um, without the soul part. But what, this is what uh, one of the things that Byron Brown says. He says, judgment is a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, it is second nature to you, so close to you that it is hard even to become aware of its existence. However, there is good reason to isolate this part of your inner process. Self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. And I really think that's true. If we believe and follow and identify with this voice that's always telling us we're not okay, it really limits our potential, our capacity to open and awaken. And so this practice that we're doing here, I think is one of the profound ways we can begin to first see, but then ultimately transform and perhaps free ourselves from this tendency of mind. And so there's a whole thrust in this practice towards acceptance. 
We often talk about accepting or opening to the present moment. And this is at the heart of this movement. Can we accept this present moment, our mind, our bodies, our experience? If we can do that, this tendency towards judging can diminish. If we're always evaluating and critically assessing this present moment and how we're doing, the heart's always going to be a little contracted. There's going to be that sense of separation. And so to begin to, as I said, see this tendency of mind and work with it skillfully, I think is essential on our spiritual path if we have this kind of tendency. And so many people in the practice meetings will bring this up, the pain of of seeing over and over again this tendency to to be judgmental, to be critical, to be cruel, to be unkind towards ourselves or towards others. And we really start to see that on this kind of retreat. There's this cliched saying, Jack Angler, who has practiced in, um, uh, at IMS for many years, that where he says something like, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And what that means is we actually need a healthy sense of self to be able to deconstruct the sense of self. If we start from a place of um, nihilism, of of worthlessness, of not feeling okay about ourselves, that's not a healthy place to begin the kind of deconstruction that this form of meditation practice, that deep spiritual practice, can open us to where we really see the impersonal nature of this mind and body. But we have to start from a way of relating where there's a healthy sense of self that we can then have the courage and the curiosity to begin to deconstruct and see its its true nature. And so for many of us, um, the early trajectory of our practice, and it can be a theme that runs for, for a long time, can be devoted to self-acceptance, to this exploration of how do I relate to myself with a sense of kindness and appreciation rather than criticism and uh, unkindness, ill will. And so this potential for healing actually deepens our capacity for wisdom and compassion. It deepens the capacity we can have for transformative insight because there's that basic sense of um, resiliency there, of openness, of trust, of confidence. In this practice of sitting and walking and being in silence day after day, it's a very uh, common experience that people have that their habits of mind that cause them suffering and that old wounds and memories and patternings, conditionings from the past come up. You know, we're sitting there quietly minding our business and a memory from just before the retreat or from 10 years ago, or 20, or 30, or wherever, some wound, some hurt or harm that often we've done to ourselves, or perhaps we've done to others and we feel badly about, will come into our experience. And it can feel very real and very alive, and learning how to skillfully relate and respond to those kinds of memories and the seeing of those patterns, again, is an important part of this process. We start to see how we've actually learned to be self-critical. We've learned this conditioned behavior of self-judgment or negativity. Many of us have internalized a message that we're not okay, we're not good enough. And it's the, the view through which we approach the world always out of this sense of self-deficiency. Jules Pfeiffer, who's another cartoonist with a very wry sense of humor, says, I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. (laughs) So we get it from everywhere, right? 
just internalizing this message of, of who we are and how we are in the world. And it could be about our bodies, our looks, our, our clothes, our possessions, our intellect, our athletic or artistic or music abilities. You know, our whole educational system is based on evaluation, right? Comparing and grades and who's in and who's out and cliques and clubs and sports. And so it's very understandable that we take in that message and sometimes even feel that we should be kind of critical of ourselves. That's what humility is, to be always self-denigrating. Um, and that's appropriate or, or, you know, it's mean we're not prideful. But for many of us, we've distorted that tendency. And again, it, it's... It, we've taken on this message of deep deficiency, a deep lack of self-confidence or trust in ourselves. And and to, for some people, it can really uh, solidify into a felt sense or belief that we're inherently bad or wrong in some way. Annie used that as an example of a sticky thought because it can be very pervasive for some of us that we don't deserve to be here, that somehow everyone else should be here, has figured it out, is doing the right thing, and I alone are the oddball, the misfit, the one that's not quite, you know, in, in the, the pattern of how things are done here. So many of us can feel that at times or a lot of the time. And so to wisely engage, to wisely be mindful of these kinds of very sticky thoughts, as I said, is really uh, an important part of the unwinding, of the conditioning that leads us into contraction, leads us into a sense of separation, of anxiety and fear, and some skillful reflection about these kinds of thoughts, to see their conditioned nature, even understand a little bit about how they got conditioned. Again, this is not telling long stories, but just seeing this is the nature of these kinds of thoughts really can help us begin to unwind, let go of this tendency. If we don't bring them into the light of mindfulness, they will continue. There's, you know, once that wheel gets rolling, unless there's something that... um, interrupts that patterning, the conditioning can just continue unless we really engage with it in a skillful way. So this tendency of mind towards judging and comparing, the Buddha talked about quite a bit. The Pali word he used is mana, M-A-N-A, and it's usually translated as conceit, which we tend to take as being thinking of ourselves as more than, better than. But in the Buddha's understanding, it was any form of comparing, better than, worse than, or even the same as. He put in this basket or category of comparing, mana of conceit. And so whether it's a lack of self-judgment, whether it's judging others or feeling judged, all of this whole realm of comparing. And what's interesting about this as a a tendency of mind is it's actually one of the last fetters to go before full awakening. And now at that level, it's very subtle. It's any subtle reification of the I and a sense of self in any solid way. But it's right there in those last fetters before full awakening, mana or conceit. So at both That both points to the pervasiveness of this tendency of mind, this tendency to separate and make a sense of self. And it also lets us know that we better get familiar with it because it's going to be with us for a long time. It has been and it will be unless we begin to bring this careful, kind mindfulness to this process and start seeing it for what it is. One of my uh, teachers, Sony Rinpoche, calls this tendency the disease for self-hatred, the disease of the West. He used to sort of shake his head and say, I didn't see that so much in my culture growing up, the Tibetan culture, even though he grew up in India, but he grew up very much in a 
of Tibetan culture. But he said, now I see it more in the westernized countries of Asia, in Taiwan or Singapore, that this relentless comparing, we have so many images and ideals to compare ourselves to now. It used to be just our family or the village or the local community, but now through the media, through television, films, internet, we can compare ourselves endlessly. You know, we know deep, great, intimate details about the lives. What's that show? I never watched it, but just the title, The Lives of the Rich and Famous or something like that. The Lives. And it was all about, you know, excess and gilded this and that. And people just wanting, seeing, seeing happiness there. Those of us that look into this know there's no happiness to be found in that kind of lifestyle. But it really is about finding inner peace and contentment. So looking at the conditioned nature, the deeply, for some of us, deeply conditioned nature of this tendency and how this voice, this judging voice came into being. Again, this is from Byron Brown. He says, as children, We had to learn social norms to get along, to develop a conscience. As this procedure became internalized, it became overactive or overcritical. This voice becomes the judge, the critic of everything we experience. We can come to see that now this voice is not so helpful and that actually limits and controls us because it sends us this message that we're not good enough that people won't like me just as I am. I have to put up a kind of front or persona to get by, to be accepted, to be liked. And it often has a message that you'll never change, you haven't got what it takes, this kind of diminishing over and over again of our ability ability or capacity to fully show up in life, this undermining that we've internalized. So again from Byron Brown, The judge is a conscience that helps you distinguish right from wrong. It is a motivator to push and persuade you to act in your life. It is a God that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior. It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It is a guide that provides direction as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. And last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who you think you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you were not taught while growing up was how to discover the true source of these functions in yourself. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do that are recognized as existing in you. When you were a young child, it was important that parents or responsible adults were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became more responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judge. You may not be happy with the way it performs these important functions, but you are familiar with your judge and you know that it is dependable and will always be there for you. Lest we forget The judge is not bad or evil or even useless. None of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. Our society would not be as civilized as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need a judge until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience inside ourselves. In the meantime, the judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is also mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive. It does a poor job of supporting the life of the spirit. So some really important themes there. You know, this is not something bad or wrong or unique to each one of us in the sense that no one else has it. 
It was there, it developed for a reason. Yet it's gotten neurotic in some ways. It's gotten dysfunctional in some ways. And so we need to find for ourselves a way of relating to our inner experience that actually supports our well-being and our opening and our potential for awakening. So in this workshop that I did with Byron Brown, where we engaged for the whole day in in looking at these themes, he had us do an exercise in the form of a dyad in a pair where we asked a repeating question. Some of you may be familiar with that form where you just get given one question and one person asks and the other person responds and you don't change or deviate the question, but when the person answers, you just say thank you. And then you ask the same question again. And you do this for minutes, five, ten minutes, maybe longer at a time. And it really helps to go below the sort of automatic, um, superficial answers that you might give to a question. And so the question he had us ask was, what's right about judging? And so it was just to look at, again, the, the origin story, the way we've used it as a defense mechanism, as a strategy. All, all neurotic habits are basically strategies to try to avoid suffering. But unfortunately, because they're a little neurotic, they often end up creating more suffering. But they're so, um, they're so embedded in us that we don't really know another way. So this was really helpful for me to look at what's right about judging. Why, why do I do it? What, what, was, what was the impetus for me? And, and so beginning to see the patterning, the conditioning there, and how it had served me, but now no longer did. Now had gotten distorted and outdated from, from who I am now. And so really beginning to look at it more clearly and seeing that these patterns survive because we feed them, because they have some functioning. But if, and if we don't feed them, if we hadn't fed them, they wouldn't persist. But we do feed them, and so they do persist. And feed them as meaning we go along with them, we believe them, we, we adapt and, and uh, respond to what they're telling us. And what I also saw is this judging voice has a hook in it. There's some kind of pleasure or satisfaction in the judging. And this was really instructive because often judging can feel painful. But again, we're not completely crazy. So, I mean, maybe a little bit, all of us in our own different ways, but not completely. And so when we create these habits, again, because they've served us, and that form of serving, whatever it takes, is the hook or the satisfaction or the pleasure And so to begin to look, when you notice you have a judging thought, what's pleasant about it? What's right about it? How is it serving you? One of the hooks of judging is it feels like a kind of wisdom, right? We're determining what's right and wrong, what's good and bad in ourselves or in someone else. And so that in and of itself, it's like, ah, right, wrong. We like that clarity, right, of of being able to determine that. It can feel like um, a form of safety or control. You know, don't go there, danger over there, there be dragons. No, 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 that's too scary. So come back, you know, to what's familiar. Don't say that, don't express yourself in that way, don't be like that. So it, it feels like a kind of control and helps us stay out of trouble. You can kind of feel, even as we, I say these things, the, the childhood conditioning that we all experience, you know, in the playground. Don't bite your brother. Share your toys, you know. How we are in the playground determines a lot of, you know, what friends we have. And so we've internalized these messages. Judging others negatively, it's kind of pretty easy to see the hook there, the pleasure there, because we feel superior, right? Well, I'm not like that. Look at them over there, you know, whatever they're doing. But often we can see, as we point outward in that way, it's actually papering over, hiding a place we don't want to look at our own inadequacy or the way that same 
behavior or potential shows up in us and so it lets us repress or deny um, some parts of ourselves that we don't like. And that sense of separation, which at times can feel painful, at other times can feel like an escape. Um, you know, we put up the barriers. Oh, at least I'm not like them. And we separate into, into cliques or to groups that we, we belong and the others are outside of that. It gets more interesting when we look at why do we benefit from judging others as better than us? You know, what's the payoff there? How does that help? I know for myself, when I looked at this, I saw there was a sense of safety in feeling diminished. It's like, oh, I don't have to be the one to be in charge, to put my hand up in class, or to say I'll, you know, take charge of a project because I might fail, and so it's better not to even have a possibility of failing, so I don't. I don't put myself out say that I'll do something. And so this safety of feeling diminished, it can sometimes justify feelings we might have of injustice or unfairness or um, victimhood, of envy, you know, that others, oh, they've got so much more than me or they've got access to this or that, that's why. And so we can tell ourselves a story about that. And then judging ourselves negatively. Again, really interesting to look at why we might want to do that. What is the hook? Why does that habit get perpetuated? Again, this reinforcing a view that we've internalized of ourselves as unworthy. And we're then in alignment with whatever authority figures we took that from, whether it's from a family or culture, society, whatever. And so this alignment can feel, again, safe. We can sometimes have the idea, well, if people don't like me, therefore I don't have to like, don't, they're not, therefore I don't have to like them. And it's a whole kind of pulling back, pulling away, and a, a avoidance of looking at the negative mind states that we might be experiencing, the aversion or the fear. There's a whole form of, you could say, control that comes from this story we can take in that if I'm, if I'm, unless I'm like this or not like that, I'm not lovable. I have to be good to be lovable. I have to be nice to be lovable. I have to be agreeable to be accepted. And so again, a whole story, and when I'm not like that, you know, I see myself as not like that, and therefore it's in alignment with this internalized self-view. And so this constant flow of judging, internal, external, 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 um, better, worse, it can just be a whole theme or stream that runs through kind of, at times, very strong and clear and perhaps painful, but other times, and perhaps even more challenging in this subtle way, in this way where it's just this, the soup that we swim in. And so we're not even aware that we're having them and certainly not aware of the impact, how they're shaping how we view ourselves and certainly shaping how we relate to other people. And when we notice these thoughts, if we ever get to notice them, be mindful of them, we usually think they're just observations, right? Not judgments. This is just how things are. I am like that. This person is like that. There's no other way to view this experience. It's really important for us to learn, and we'll probably talk about these more subtle functionings of the mind, about perception and projection and um, judgments, as opposed to seeing clearly. This practice is called insight meditation, and its whole functioning purpose is that we see things as clearly as we can. And usually we're seeing through the filters of our perceptions and judgments and projections. And so we don't notice this. We think that because we think something, it must be true. It must be the way things are. Um, and especially if we're used to believing these kinds of thoughts. And so we don't see 
can often not be aware of the impact of our thought, our actions and words on others, but our internal speech on ourselves. We are often crueler and more harsh to ourselves than we would ever be to someone else. And so beginning to bring that into our field of awareness, I think, is essential. So looking at this tendency, if you have it, and I think all of us have it at times, of why do we want to criticize ourselves? Again, I, you know, it's a little easier to understand the criticizing others, the sort of sense of separation or superiority that, that that can bring. As they say, the best defense is a good offense. It's like, I'll get in there first and find out, you know, say what's wrong. And that way, you know, I'll be behind my barrier of, of self-perception. But so looking at um, our negative self-talk, Try seeing if you can see what the hook or the pleasure in it. When I'm saying pleasure, it's not like, you know, the sweetness of ice cream. It's some kind of, mm, you know, where we, it's just, we can feel the, the habit being reinforced and that alignment with our belief system about ourselves can feel pleasant in the sense of the Vedna, the hedonic tone of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Some, that's what keeps habits going. There's some kind of payoff. It's why we like to sit in the same seat in the dining hall every time. We've figured out which is the best one, and then we don't have to make a decision again. Have you noticed how you've you know, made your routines of where you sit, what time you shower, where you walk at this time of day? All of these are habits that we're creating right here on this retreat. And the purpose of a habit is to lessen the decision-making processes of the mind. Decision-making takes energy. And so it's easier for the mind to slide into habit. Habits are made out of preference, usually. And preference is what feels good or right to us. And so it's the same with this internal monologue. And so... In this way, what we've done is taken on the attitudes and relationship that we've perceived. Again, it can often be a perception. Sometimes it's very clear, but that we've perceived that others have of us. We've internalized what these authority figures have taken on. And then, again, we don't have to kind of buck the system, rock the boat. We've been told, you're this way, not that way. You're not good enough here. You should be more like this. And to align with that was a protection. As a young child, when we didn't have a lot of defense mechanisms, didn't have the clarity to stand up to these authority figures, so we've internalized that message. We've submitted and basically agreed with it, taken it on. Um, Now, from this place of really wanting and having this intention aspiration for healing and for compassion and kindness and well-being, these messages stand in stark contrast to that. Um, Mindfulness can actually reveal the pain of these messages, the pain of this internalized way of relating to ourselves. And especially as we practice the Brahma-viharas, open to developing more wisdom, more loving kindness, more compassion. It just stands so much in contrast, you know, as we sit and say, may I be happy, may I be well, may I have well-being. This message of no, never, not for you, not okay, not good enough. We can see that comparison and realize that it's not. These messages are not in our best interest and they're not the truth of 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 ourselves and not not the truth and so bringing this into our cl- uh, into the um, clarity of mindfulness it's never this simple but it's almost like we have a choice which do we want to believe this wish for happiness and well-being may i be happy or this message this habit of mind that i'm i i'll never be i'll never be happy i'm not okay I'm worthless, or I'm not good enough, or I don't know what I'm doing. Which do we want to believe? The message that I don't deserve happiness, 
or this heartfelt wish that we can cultivate for ourselves. So essential for our own well-being. I think one of the, the doorways to healing this message, if you have it, around yourself, is being willing to feel how painful it is. Actually be willing to feel the ill will and the aversion and the suffering around those kinds of mind states and to see how we're creating it in that we're perpetuating this whole belief system, this way of relating to ourselves. Marian Williamson, that spiritual teacher, says, said, One day I looked at something in myself that I had been avoiding because it was too painful. Yet once I did, I had an unexpected surprise. Rather than self-hatred, I was flooded with compassion for myself because I realized the pain necessary to develop that coping mechanism to begin with. Suffering or pain can be the doorways to compassion. If we see them clearly and truly, the heart can open. And I think one of the powerful ways of tending to this mind state, if you find you're having these kinds of thoughts, is the practice of self-compassion. And we teach compassion as a Brahma-vihara, there's a whole practice to develop it, just like there is in the loving-kindness practice. But um, people like Kristen Neff, who's a insight meditation practitioner, practices here and at Spirit Rock, has developed a, a form specifically around self-compassion. There's a whole movement now of compassion teachings and practices that are so helpful. I think I'm really happy that this is available for people. But the self-compassion is very simple. There's three or four steps. And the first one often is just to have a gesture of touch. I think we did this already in the hall, right? Just this gesture of touch, whatever it feels like this sense of warmth or kindness. Maybe it was Jeannie who did that. And then you just acknowledge, this hurts. This is painful. This is suffering. This is dukkha. Whatever framing that just says, this is really hard for me right now when my mind thinks these thoughts, when I relate to myself this way. This hurts. Oh, I know. I always think of Sylvia Borstein. She'll always go, oh, honey, you okay? She talks to herself. Just to say, this tenderness that's so um, counter, you know, that, that does counter this harshness in the mind. Then the next step is to recognize that we're not alone. That right at this very moment, perhaps in this very room, other people are struggling with the same challenge, the same suffering, the same pain, the same heartache. And so we just broaden the field a little. We're not alone in this. We're not isolated. It's not unique to me. This is a human condition of suffering. And then the last step is, what would be a kind response? What would be a phrase or an attitude or a gesture? There's a a phrase I was... um, taught in the metta practice, metta for self, that goes, may I love and accept myself just as I am. Really powerful to address this sense of self-judging. Or just to simply say, may I be kind to myself or compassionate toward myself. Or may, may I hold this harshness with tenderness. Whatever would meet that moment. Sometimes the gesture is an action to go get a cup of tea or go for a walk or sit somewhere that's healing for you out in nature. So we just find resources to help us meet this tendency towards criticism and judging. And the more we're willing to do that over and over again, it can just wear down this tendency, wear down this challenge. We can also use our practice to see these judging thoughts for just what they are, just as Annie taught this morning. A thought is just a blip of energy in the mind. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I always say, thoughts have the power we choose to give them. If you don't question them, if you, you know, believe them, if you take them on, then there's your worldview. There's your relationship to yourself, to the other. 
but you see them for what they are, just this little blip of energy, this wisp of words in the mind that often don't even completely form. We kind of know what they're saying. We can see that for ourselves and, and realize they're impermanent, like every conditioned thing. And the fact that they've been conditioned, we've learned them. We didn't start out with this worldview, this self-view. We've learned it. The fact that they've been conditioned means they can be unconditioned. They can be unlearned. This is the great and powerful teaching of the Buddha. What is conditioned can be unconditioned. As I've said in this practice, it's very common that these old memories, hurts and wounds can come up. Sometimes of self-recrimination, of things we've done that we feel terrible about, can be about things that have been done to us. What our practice can be then is, can we hold them with some tenderness? Can we feel them in the body? Not get lost in the story, not go back and rehash what happened but actually in the here and now, feel the emotions. Can we name the story or the event or the relationship to ourselves that we're having? Judging, harshness, the critic, whatever it might be, regret or remorse, shame. Name that, feel it in the body. Breathe with it. See if we can invite some spaciousness or some openness with it. Can we hold this with acceptance? This construct, because it is a construct, but here it is expressing itself, has a conditioned nature, and whatever the conditions were or whatever the particular experience that has come up in memory that's bringing some of these feelings up, at the time you did the best you could with the resources that you had. You know, we're often younger and vulnerable and confused and afraid. And so to have some sense of acceptance or kindness, this is where the forgiveness practice that we'll probably do one of these Brahma Vihara afternoons where we really see, is there this possibility for forgiving? And again, there's a whole practice around that at the right time with a feeling of, of, you know, taking care of yourself. But even the potential to forgive, the the thought of forgiving is so healing. Uh, I love this statement about forgiveness. Forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. So many, so many have spent so much time just really ruminating about the, if only I could have, I would have, I should have. It's gone. We can't change the past. What we can change is our relationship to the past, our relationship to those experiences. And then we're more in alignment with what we know to be really uh, on the path and on this, uh, on, on this deepening, that, that we are whole and inherently um, valuable as human beings, that there's this basic goodness, and again, not to create value judgments, but we're all here because of that wish for healing, for opening, for deepening, for transformation. And we touch that place, it's what brings us here, that place of deep peace or ease or acceptance. We know that place. We need to start trusting that more than these conditioned views, these these habits of mind that have been with us so long, again, they often seem like second nature, but they're not. They're not who we truly are. Again, from Byron Brown, he says, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and from your own internal judging mind. So this potential for actually alignment with our intentions and aspiration um, and, and how we relate to ourselves, then this whole practice can really uh, begin that transformation. 
And the other place that we can have a lot of pain and suffering is judging others. Again, we've learnt it as a defense mechanism, a sense of separation, creating barriers, creating boundaries of what's okay and not okay. But it's all out of our, again, perceptions and conditioned programming of what's good and bad, right and wrong, acceptable, not acceptable. And we've aligned ourselves so much with that, we don't see it anymore as views and opinions, but how things are. It's, it's conditioned, it's created these habits and fears and neuroses, and it creates a sense of limitation. It certainly limits our capacity to be open and inclusive and accepting of other people. And so this sort of stepping out of our fascination with our own self-view and opening up uh, the field to include others and their experience that we often have no idea what another person's felt experience, lived experience is, why they're acting the way they're doing, why they do the things they do, their own conditioning. Yet we can be so judgmental about what someone else is doing. And so to step out of that fixity of view, especially when it creates this sense of disconnection and separation, because it means we're not being empathetic. There's not compassion and curiosity about the other person. And we can start to, again, feel the pain of that on retreat, how the mind just so easily judges the other for what they're wearing or the way they're walking, things that have no actual impact on our direct experience. And how much time do we spend criticizing and commenting how someone is walking or the food they eat or where, what they're doing with their day has no direct relationship with our immediate experience. And yet we take it in and take it on and make a whole story and world of it. I, I recently read this book by Shaquille Chaudhry. He's a um, diversity teacher. He's actually from Canada. Very wise book. It's called Deep Diversity. And he's actually a meditator. And so he brings in meditation and mindfulness a lot, a lot into the book because of the power of mindfulness to bring awareness to perceptions and unconscious bias that lead to this kind of othering and all of the prejudice that's unfortunately so common in our world. He says, all of us display inconsistencies to a greater or lesser degree between our stated beliefs and how we act. Studies show that people who are able to detect the contradiction between their intentions and actions intentions and actions, are more successful in reducing bias. Meditators are especially good at this. Their mindfulness training teaches them to observe, observe their thoughts and feelings without judgment, a technique that tacitly familiarizes oneself with such discrepancies. So just this potential for our practice to reveal the hidden unconscious biases and agendas that we can have through noticing this discrepancy between what our heartfelt intentions are and how we actually show up, what the mind is filling our thoughts with, how we're actually responding to the world. He goes on to recommend a practice he calls carrots and curiosity. He says, because a stereotype is a generalization, when we encounter a member of a racial group or sexual orientation different than our own, there is a tendency in our, for our brain to register that person as a symbol of the group rather than see them as an individual. This does not happen for members of our own groups. Researchers have found that getting subjects to ask simple questions about vegetable preference, as in, I wonder if this person likes carrots, helps in bias reduction. It appears that the power of curiosity can help humanize others so we can see them as unique individuals rather than as representatives of the group. So it's again just bringing our interest and our full presence to experience so we're not just running on these automatic 
patterns that are so familiar we often don't know they're at work, yet they're creating biases and are often what's underlying all of the inequity, the injustice that we see on on certainly the gross levels, but even on these more subtle levels, microaggressions, things like that. Mindfulness itself is a powerful way to change these habits of mind. So it's possible, it really is, to work with this tendency. Really important to do it with kindness, with compassion, as I've been saying. I also think it's helpful to bring humor in, because it can seem relentless, the judging mind so endless. Jack Cornfield will often say, start counting your judgments. You know, in a day, by the time you get to 539, you realize it's a pretty just automatic condition pattern. We can't take it so personally. Give your voice, your judging voice, a name or an identity. You know, thank you, Mrs. Johnson, but I don't need your opinion right now, whoever your second grade teacher was. See, again, as we've said, what's fueling the judgments? There's often some feeling of disease or disquiet, anxiety or aversion, wanting, and then that's just feeding these judging thoughts. So see what's underneath it. There's often a, a feeling of contraction. And so that can be a signal. If you find that there's a tightness in the body, in the heart, around the face, what kind of thoughts are being generated? And so we drop into the body so we're not so lost into the content. And we start to see, as I said, this deeply automatic condition nature of judging. And the more we see that, the less reactive we are, the more they can just zip through. Oh, there's another judging thought. Let it go. Don't let it. It doesn't have to become sticky. We don't have to get identified with it. I was on retreat here once, this is just one particular time, um, looking at judging and just noticing how often it would happen. And I remember I would walk into the dining room, and this is before the dining room was remodeled. And IMS has gotten quite spiffy. For those of you that are new new to it, don't remember how kind of dingy it used to be in a lot of places, especially the dining room was dark, it was crowded, it was kind of cramped, and now they've really opened it up. But I'd walk in and my mind would alight on things and there was just this list of 10 things I didn't like. The condiments are too crowded, there's only one toaster, the floor is sticky, you know, the chairs are too close, whatever it was, it was just a list. And I noted it and named it and felt the, you know, the irritation or the fear or whatever it was, nothing worked. And I remembered Joseph's teaching about judging. He would always say, and add, and the sky is blue. Um, you'd have your judging thought and just say, and the sky is blue. So I tried that and I go, damn right, the sky is blue. And so is this, you know, this judging thought, it's right. So that didn't work for me. <laughs> so what I came up with was every time I made a practice that every time I had a judging thought, I would add and chipmunks are cute, which they are, I think. And yet, you know, I was just seeing them all the time or walking outside. And so every time I had a joke, and chipmunks, oh, chipmunks. It was like I'd have this little image of this cute little, you know, with a tail and the little things. And it just shifted the pattern. So I offer that to you. If that's helpful, you can substitute anything that works into the chipmunk role. But to see it's a conditioned pattern. You don't give it energy. You don't feed it. You see it's conditioned in permanent nature. It's workable. And this patterning, like all of the hindrances, like all of these difficulties, can be a doorway into deep transformation. How we relate to ourselves, how we relate to the whole of our experience, how we relate to the world. And learning to be kind to ourselves, to deepen in self-acceptance. We move from the personal exploration, the personal uh, insights, to the impersonal, universal nature of all experience from that place of trust, confidence, and well-being. Then the letting go can be deep and profound. But we start where we are with kindness and compassion. And it informs how we do our practice here and how we live our lives. So let's just let the words settle into silence.
Thank you for your attention. Again, some time for walking and checking in with your energy if you haven't made it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.